welcome to the Tour Backspin Show, where we talk history of the PGA Tour. I'm your host, Larry Bosch. Our sweet spot is the 1960s and the 1970s, but you never know exactly where we'll land. If you're into this kind of thing, check out our free weekly newsletter, Tour Backspin, available on Substack or at tourbackspin.com. Okay, we're on the tee. Let's get going. Today we're talking with John Riley, author of How He Played the Game, a biography of Ed Porky Oliver. Hi, John. Thanks for joining us today on the Tour Backspin Show. Let's talk about how you got involved with the book, How We Played the Game. Well, I, uh, uh, I've lived in Delaware all my life. I grew up uh, just a few blocks from Porky Oliver's family. Uh, my father had, uh, played on a championship caddy team with him when he was a boy at uh, uh, the Wilmington Country Club. And uh, they remained uh, certainly friends all their lives, although they didn't see much of each other after I uh, moved around the country. But uh, they, they came back to Delaware on a couple of occasions, and each time they lived in this home very nearby. And uh, I went through first to fourth grade with her son, Bobby, and then uh, all through high school. In fact, we played on the same high school golf team. And then in uh, 1983, uh, I proposed a resolution to uh, the Newcastle County Council here in Denver to rename uh, what was at that time the Green Hill Golf Club, which was the former Wilmington Country Club, uh, where he had caddied and became an assistant pro before he went out on the tour, to rename it in his honor. And that was passed unanimously, and we had a and we had a big. Uh, dedication back in 1983 Tommy Bolt and Charlie Sifford came to town and uh, so I have this you know long history and foundation with Oliver the Oliver family and uh, I never really thought about writing a book about it but um, uh, I had a very very close friend uh, played for the Philadelphia Eagles lost his arm and shoulder in a with a very tragic uh uh, in rare disease called desmoid uh, that almost took his life. And uh, he uh, he just went on to lead a, 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 just an amazing life. And uh, uh, I always said to him, uh, and he became a motivational speaker, and I always said to him, geez, when I retire, I want to make sure we write your story. we got to write your story. So uh, right when I retired from my business career, I, I sat down with Kevin and together – wrote his autobiography called Tackling Life. And that gave me kind of the writing bug. Uh, I had been writing articles for uh, an online uh, publication uh, for several years. <clears throat> and then uh, uh, I decided to write uh, sort of what I call contemporary Delaware history. Came a bit of a memoir because I had worked for multiple governors and multiple CEOs um, during my regular business career. And in one of those instances, um, the Hercules Corporation, the company basically imploded, uh, was, went through a series of proxy fights, was eventually taken over. And I wanted to tell that story, you know, as having been someone sort of, if you will, inside the room. Uh, while all that was going on. So uh, I ended up writing that book uh, 
and, and that was called Delray Witness Behind the Scenes First State. And then uh, <clears throat> the idea of uh, doing something about Oliver came to my mind, and uh, I started doing some research, wondering whether there was enough there for a book. And almost uh, immediately uh, became uh, really shocked, if you will, by how much there was there, you know, that this guy was a truly amazing athlete, an amazing golfer, and had a huge impact on golf and the golf tour. And then I started to, you know, just, I guess, lament the fact that nobody had ever really told that story. Um, and anytime you read about him in any golf publications, it, it just really it was uh, uh, a very cursory uh, comment or two about him, uh, nothing in depth. And, uh, wow, when I started uh, looking into his career, there was just so much there. That's interesting. That's, that's kind of why I'm attracted to... Um the history of the PGA Tour is because there's a handful of very well-known stories, but there are there's a truck full of stories that need to be told that nobody really knows about. And I think Porky Oliver was one of those. Why don't you, why yeah, there's no question that he had a huge impact on golf, on helping to popularize the tour. Uh, as I pointed out in... in uh, in, in in the book in 1957, uh, Sports Illustrated referred to him as the most popular man on the golf circuit. Uh, you know, and I there's certainly nobody back here in Delaware, as much as they love the guy. I mean, I grew up, the people here in this town idolized him, just idolized the guy. But I don't think anybody, at least from the time he died in 1961 onward, had any clue about that kind of history and how significant uh, it was and and what an impact he had on the golf tour for all those years. Now, uh, Porky Oliver and Tony Lima, the subject of my book, they had a, a few things in common. And um, the number one thing would be that they died way too young. Why don't you talk a little bit about how, uh, how Porky was stricken and when in his career that happened? Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's really a, a, a shame, a sad story. Uh, but boy, uh, you know, even writing about it and reading about him, uh, it's hard to be sad. I mean, the guy was always so upbeat. Uh, I mean, even when he was suffering with lung cancer and going through all this, I mean, he focused on other people. He focused on trying to keep their spirits up, always always saying, I'm going to beat this thing, I'm going to beat this thing, I'm going to be that guy who does. Um, so he he just, um, you know, when you think about it, and this goes back to, you know, some of his, uh, uh, I think, if you look at his career over time, uh, really after a couple of years on tour, I think the good life was getting to him. This was a very, very athletic guy, and he's put on weight. I mean, by the time he went in the army, he's five foot nine. He weighs about two twenty-five. By that time, Snead had nicknamed him Porky, and uh, one of the most famous things that came about him was his appetite. And you know, he was constantly being compared to Babe Ruth, for instance, and his famous appetite. So, um, if you look at it throughout his career, he does not take 
good care of himself, and he is smoking in every picture, nearly every picture you ever give him. There's a very famous photo of him when he and Hogan finished 1-2 in the Masters in 1953, and and they're holding hands with uh, Bobby Jones, the uh, the two of them together, with Clifford Roberts in the background, and they're you know, on Oliver's side and his left hand is a cigarette. In the 1952 uh, U.S. Open, when he overtook Hogan over the final 36 holes in Dallas at Northwood, um, he overtook, and he still lost the Open and finished second because Boris played so well and passed both Hogan and Oliver. Or actually, Boris was ahead of him, but he passed Hogan. Uh, but, but overcame a five-shot deficit to Hogan that day. Once again, you the photograph of him. There's the, the ubiquitous cigarette in his hand. That, it was that way throughout his career. So anyway, he, uh, he started having symptoms, of noticeable symptoms, late 59, uh, early 60. Um, he had this cough he couldn't get rid of, and no doubt he had been sick for a long time. He still went to the Crosby that year and finished fourth. That's amazing. Uh, he got within a shot on the back nine. He continued to play all of that spring. He got to Augusta. He finished 20th at Augusta. Hmm. Uh, and he was, at that time, he was eight weeks away from having his lung removed. Wow. Uh, Houston, a couple of weeks later, two weeks, three weeks, two, two or three weeks before they took his lung out, he, he beat everyone in the field over the final. 36 holes, I think with the exception of one, and Arnie was leading with Bill Collins, and I think he beat Arnie by four shots over the last 36 holes. The following week at Colonial, he's a week from having his lung removed, and at the end of uh, 36, he was tied with Gary Player, I think five <laughs> shots back. Uh, and then, you know, things raveled. He was driving back to Denver because he was feeling so sick. And by the time he got back there, it, it was a matter of hours. They had him in the hospital, removed his lung, and um, and a rib. And uh, it began a what I think is the most amazing. Um, it, you know, you see and you hear about these farewell tours, and you hear about victory laps and everything else. It began like a year and a half, where Delaware and all of these others around the United States. Uh, paid homage to this guy. I mean, it was just absolutely amazing. And it culminated with with all of these different fundraisers to raise money for Oliver and his family for cancer. Uh, President Kennedy, who was president at the time, of course, Eisenhower, both joined a committee that was run by the uh, Western Golf Association, a guy by the name of O'Keefe. And uh, Bob Hope was on the committee. And... and uh, <clears throat> You know, all, an entire celebrity list of people around the country, Ed Sullivan, uh, Bing Crosby, uh, all to raise money for Oliver and his family. In fact, the largest fundraiser was held like three years after he died that uh, that uh, Crosby helped spread in, in California. The, the biggest event, though, that occurred during that time uh, was that within several weeks before he died, uh, the, uh, the PGA named him the honorary captain of the Ryder Cup that year. And that was a team with Snead and and Casper and Arnie. And, I mean, it was a terrific uh, Ryder Cup team. 
and you know it was just amazing but but typical oliver he's probably you know at that time when when that happened he was probably six weeks from his passing he was in the hospital and uh the 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 letter from the pga said that they they'd like him to come to england with the team and he he answered by saying my god i i don't even know if i'm going to be able to go back to my house (laughs) from the hospital and they'd like me to go to england he said i i get 15 needles a day Uh, i take 15 pills a day and i get needles every four hours I think they're both PGA record. <laughs> and, and that was the kind of guy he was, you know. He just he stayed upbeat basically until the end. Um, and, uh, boy, in just uh, the outpouring after he died uh, across the world, uh, it made, you know, the middle of the sports page uh, in Australia. That's so cool. he, he made a big impact everywhere he went. Yeah, I was really struck by the fact of his uh, resilience, his almost happy-go-lucky attitude towards life. It didn't matter whether he uh, had one of his heartbreakingly disappointing um, finishes or if he had won a tournament. He was always upbeat, it seemed like. Yeah, and it wasn't that he uh, that it didn't affect him. You know, I mean, that, that same Sports Illustrated article that named him the most popular in golf uh, was entitled The Second Man. And it was a story about how many times the guy had finished second. And some of those really were almost tragic endings. Uh, But he seemed to always just pick himself up and and go back out there. But it definitely bothered him. I mean, uh, one of the chapters in the book that I I entitled uh, The Struggle to Win Again, uh, he was having such a difficult time getting across the finish line. And after after, several huge disappointments, uh, he was back in Wilmington, and uh, he was into a crowd uh, at uh, at an event he was at uh, where he was the speaker. And you know, he and he said out loud, he says, "It's just like I don't know how to win anymore." I, I think back to that time in my mind, you know, when when I was disqualified at the Open, uh, when I broke the record at the Canadian Open, and somebody came in and beat me. I always think I'm going to. You know, come back to the board, and something's going to happen, uh, and I'm not going to win. And, and and he stopped and he said to the crowd, "Is there a, is there a good psychiatrist in the house?" <laughs> and you think about that today. You know, all these all these golfers, you know, go around. They have the they have their coaches. They have their they have their uh, sports psychologists. They have they have teams around them. You know, and this poor guy's driving from coast to coast. Uh, having blowouts of probably about every thousand miles on his car and uh, and making it up as he goes. Why don't you talk about that uh, disqualification at that Open? Uh, what year was it and what, what exactly it, happened? It, yeah, so uh, Oliver, you know, came out in 1940 uh, obviously ready to go. I mean, he, he won in, uh, he beat Hogan, um, at the San Francisco match play. He got knocked out in extra holes. Um, uh, I forget. I think it was by, I don't know whether it was by Warsham, uh, maybe Henry Picard. And uh, goes down to uh, the uh, Crosby, which I guess at that point was about in its fourth year. 
fact, that was the year that uh, I think the first of the road films came out, The Road to Singapore, I think it was, uh, with Crosby. And he wins the Crosby with a record. Tony Pena said that the second round when he played with him, he said it was the greatest tee to green round I've ever seen in my life. Uh, and he broke the record for the Crosby. Um, he, he heads over to uh, Phoenix. Um, at the end of, uh, I'm going to say, 54 holes, uh, Hogan's in the clubhouse. He's never won. Uh, he's come in second a bunch. He's already considered one of the best players in the world. Uh, Hogan's in the clubhouse. Uh, Oliver's way behind, and Oliver shoots 30 over the last nine. Wow. Oliver takes Hogan and wins the Phoenix Open. Uh, he goes to Texas. Uh, he almost wins the Texas Open. Um, he goes into a little mini slump. Uh, in fact, he comes back to Delaware. Um, and um, back to, and then up to his uh, his club pro job. <laughs> to me, the strangest of places. He takes the club pro job to help you know with the expenses and everything in Hornell, New York. <laughs> Hornell, New York. I mean, it's almost near nothing. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so he he drives over to the U.S. Open. Oh, so he, he he's actually you know exempt into the Open that year because the year before he had finished 29th. In those days. The top 30 got into the next year without having to go through the qualifier. So he gets to the Open in Canterbury, and um, uh, he he ends up at the end of 72 holes uh, tied. But there was an incident, you know, that that occurred as he was teeing off in the fourth round. You know, in those days, of course, all the way up, I'm going to say until what about 62, maybe. Uh, the Open finished with 36 holes on Saturday. Yeah, I think and, 65 uh, was the last year. Or 64 when Ken Venturi almost uh, passed okay, out. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's that right. was the last 36-hole final. Randy Congressional. Yeah. So um, he uh, he was playing with uh, a character, a real character from the tour by the name of Johnny Bullock. Um, <laughs> and, and Bullock contended a lot and, in fact, was second, I think, that year at the at the British Open, and uh, but he only won once, I think, the LA Open. But he was a real character, and and, and he actually bought a surplus C forty seven during the war and used to fly to tournaments. And uh, you know, he was the proverbial bullet in the china shop. And uh, I think Dutch Harrison was the other member of their group, and they had finished eighteen. The group ahead of them teed off. Um. And uh, so their names were up on the board, and in those days, you know, it wasn't like it is today, where it's very, very official. But to make matters worse, the official from the USGA, who was doing the starting on the tee, had gone to lunch. <laughs> so, so um, Oliver um, Bulla insists they tee off. And, and he mentions that, that there's thunderstorms in the area. We can get done before the thunderstorms come in. And this seems to be the way that the story's been told about history. But if you read the detail, and I do a full chapter on it, th this, this situation was a lot more complicated than that. So anyway, Oliver, Bulla, and Harrison, they tee off. They hit their drives 
the ball's out fairway, and Joe Dye, who obviously becomes a big name in golf at that time, he's on the USDA committee. He comes, he comes running up, and he said, "You guys may have disqualified yourselves. You teed off too early." And and there was a warning. There were some people who were probably a, a grade above spectator. I think they were from the club, who said to said to them. Uh, that you probably shouldn't tee off, you could get disqualified. Now, that's not very official. And, of course, Bola's pushing back, saying, there's nothing wrong with it. We can tee off. And Oliver's a young guy, right, far, you know, much less experienced than they were. And hits his drive, Die comes up and uh, says, uh, you may have disqualified yourself. Wait here. So I'll go see if I can get officials to make a decision as to determine what you're doing. So, anyway. He disappears for something like 15 minutes with them sitting on the tee. He comes back. He said he couldn't find anybody to make a decision. <laughs> so go ahead and tee off, uh, but know that you could be disqualified. Oliver goes out. He shoots the lowest 36 for the last day of the Open. He's the leader in the clubhouse. They come up to him. They said, we've met, and you're disqualified. Oh, jeez. I mean, Bobby Jones called it the worst I've ever heard of in golf. Uh, the newspapers across the country, I mean, some of the things they had to say, uh, particularly uh, uh, Grantland Rice, I mean, <laughs> he just ripped into the USDA uh, and, and, and sports writers across the country, uh, one after another, you know, for throwing the book at Oliver for a, for a minor technicality. And, uh, you know, it's just a shame. I mean, to Bola's credit, uh, Sarazen and, and, and uh, Lawson Little came in and it tied Oliver. They all pleaded with the USDA to please let Oliver play in the playoff the next day. But they wouldn't relent. And uh, eventually, uh, several days later, they had to issue what was kind of called in the newspapers a white paper explaining their position. Um, so it was, and it, and it was something that stayed with Oliver the rest of his career. I mentioned earlier that when he died, it, you know, it was in the papers in Australia. Well, even in that article, they talked about the fact that he was disqualified for teeing off too early in the 1940 U.S. Open 21 years before. <laughs> what a mess. And it actually gained him more fans in the end, didn't it? Well, even, uh, you know, several, um, uh, mainly, uh, you know, I think of uh, uh, Walter Hagen. Uh, Walter Hagen walked up to him after he played and, and and they said that Oliver had tears in his eyes. He was quoted in the paper saying, you know, this might be, you know, I mean, you talk about some uh, prophetic words. He said, you know, I may never have a chance like this in my life. Oh. Uh, I mean, it was a heck of a thing to say. And anyone was saying, I really need the money. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but anyway, Walter Hagen came up to him to console him and said, kid, don't worry about it. You're going to be more famous for doing it. And there was some truth to it. And, and his mood changed pretty quickly because uh, Sarazen and Golf Magazine immediately booked him for a series of exhibitions around the country that went on for two months. And he made more money than he would make winning the U.S. Open. Yeah, that's how guys of that era. Yeah, that's how, that? that's how guys of that era made extra money was playing uh, oh, yeah. exhibitions. Yeah, sure. No, I mean, Definitely, Walter Hagen made more money that way than he ever made playing golf. Yeah. Um, so it was. Uh, it really was, uh, in some respects, uh, it's what made him famous. Uh, heck, when he got the first draft call of anybody, I mean, he, almost a year before Pearl Harbor. Yeah. Um, 
they, they had to appoint somebody to handle his press for <laughs> Dick's New Jersey when he was in basic training, you know, because everybody wanted to interview him, the famous, uh, the famous Sporky Oliver. So it did. It was, it was quite an episode. I think it was very, very unfortunate. Um, uh, but there's no question that at least for a period in his life, he was more famous because it happened to him. What, uh, what years did he, his career span on the PGA Tour? So he he really went out on the, this kind of a funny story. He he won't, uh, there, there was a group of members at the Wilmington Country Club that recognized, man, this guy's better than anybody on earth. I mean, they just and all the kids around. I mean, if, if you went out and played uh, on Caddy Day at Wilmington Country Club, they said hundreds of caddies would go watching. He <laughs> uh, was it was such a show. And uh, anyway, so they sponsor him. They give him fifteen hundred dollars, not a bad amount of money in that at that time. To go down to Florida and to play the winter circuit, well, darn if he doesn't finish third in the Miami Open. I mean, uh, he's ever heard of this guy. He shows up and finishes third in the Miami Open. So um, he, it, it was really 1936, the beginning of 37. Uh, but the funny thing about that story is he comes home from uh, from Florida after playing the circuit, and he gets interviewed by the press, and he tells them. That well, I won eighteen hundred dollars. They gave me fifteen hundred dollars, uh, you know, to sponsor me, but I came home broke. I don't know what happened to the rest of the money, but they did have a lot of slot machines down there. <laughs> I mean, they, they, you know, I mean, the guy was just a—he was a real character. There's no, no question about it. Um, and, and his uh, time on yeah, so he that was his beginning, uh, but he did not actually hit the full time circuit until 1940. That was the first year he played, uh, you know, the tour for the year, uh, so to speak, and what the tour was those days. Uh, and of course, he wasn't eligible for the PGA, and neither was Lawson Little, which is uh, another story that I cover in the book because they had the apprentice role. Yeah. You know, the, the, Two of the three guys that finished tied for the U.S. Open not even allowed to play in the PGA because they didn't, <laughs> they didn't have enough years as an apprentice. And uh, but that that really became and just as soon as he gets out on the tour, he wins four times. He wins as much as Hogan, uh, and he gets this Earl F. call a year to two years before almost any of them. Two years before Hogan, heck, Hogan won seven times in the first two years that Oliver was in the Army. And over over the course of the war, he played in sixty six tournaments. Oliver played in six. So yeah. I mean, I think it took a, it really took a lot. And then to your point about his question about how long he played, he did play all the way up until his illness in nineteen sixty. But he really had several periods of time away. He he left the tour really, uh, you know, because he wanted to be more of a family man. Uh, he took a position in Seattle for almost three years, and he only played sporadically over that time. Another time, he took a position for two years uh, at uh, Blue Hill in uh, Canton, Massachusetts. Uh, in fact, that was the site of the PGA the first year he was there. Uh, and and then he also, uh, in 19, beginning in 1950, he missed like three months for a car accident. I mean, car accidents were a big deal, obviously, yeah. to these tour players. I mean, Hogan being the most famous. 
But Oliver Jim Tornesia and a pro from New England by the name of Les Kennedy and Dave Alice were coming back from Arizona. They were hit by a tractor trailer in Virginia. That was in 1946, right after the war. And, and Kennedy, uh, he was a he was a tanker during, uh, I believe, in Patton's army during the war. They get hit by a tractor trailer. His wife gets thrown from the car. She's hit by a tractor trailer going the other way. I mean, it's a horrendous accident. Ugh. She's killed. Um, you know, that was, you know, the worst thing. Oliver thought that okay and said at first it was reported in the papers that he was injured, but he said that he really wasn't. So it must have had some impact on him. And, uh, but then in, at the end of 49, uh, literally New Year's Eve, I believe it was, uh, he was hit by a lumber truck on his way to the LA Open in uh, Oregon and uh, missed like the next three months and, and it affected him for the rest of his career. So and that he, was... had, uh, he had a career that spanned over 20 years, but he walked away from the game uh, 56 months during the Army for all those years and then for these other periods of time when he took uh, club pro jobs and for car accidents. That uh, his induction into the army was uh, was a very interesting part of his his legacy. He was he was in the army so much earlier than any of the other pros off the PGA tour. Uh, than anyone, I think the only other pro that was drafted that year was Jim Arnesia, and that was interesting because he and and, and Obviously, came from a famous golfing family, yeah. an amazing golfing family. But he personally, you know, was was not uh, anywhere near the prominence of Oliver was. Won multiple times on the PGA Tour, um, but you know, when when you look at it, he was the only other guy, I think, for a full year. But he was back out almost as fast as he went in because he was over the age of twenty eight, and when the new draft law was passed. Uh, uh, at, uh, after Oliver was in for, you know, up and through the next fall, so of 41, just before Pearl Harbor, um, they let out those who were over the age of 28. Um, and, you know, it's it kind of a quirk in the draft law, so Tornesia got out again. Then <laughs> Pearl Harbor happens, Tornesia gets recalled. And Oliver, who who was had just written a letter, in fact, to uh, uh, he had just written a letter to uh, the president of uh, Wilson Sporting Goods, reminding him that he was still an employee of Wilson Sporting Goods, and uh, I'll be back out, uh, uh, you know, representing Wilson here at you know at the end of my one year. So he was only supposed to go in for a year, <laughs> then Pearl Harbor happened. Uh. So uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it was, uh, you know, pretty unfortunate. And and then you started to see players sort of one at a time. I think Vic Gezzi, uh the next January, he was picked up. He got his draft notice, I think, at the L.A. Open. Uh, and then by the late spring, Sneed gets drafted. And, uh, and, and incredibly, I, I think, the day before he goes into the Navy, he wins the PGA. <laughs> his first major championship, uh, and Oliver got to play in that one. You know, one of the six events that right. Oliver got to play in while he was in the army, because it was right there in New Jersey, right down from 
Fort Dix at Seabue. Mm -hmm. So you spoke about the um, accident that Porky was in with the lumber truck in Oregon on his way to the LA Open. So he was traveling from his uh, home in the Seattle area when he was the uh, club pro at Inglewood. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah, correct. yeah, I found that very interesting because it's up in my neck of the woods. And Inglewood was quite the quite the colorful country club back in those days. Yeah, it had an interesting history, didn't it? I, I, I looked into it, you know, a little bit while I was doing the doing the story. And, I, in fact, I was in touch with the club at one point trying to get uh, some assistance, as I did with almost everybody along the way. But uh, I never really got anywhere with them. Uh, I did, I think, talk to the club manager or somebody one day. Um, but uh, there was enough, like, on their website and through newspaper time and that sort of thing that I could pick up, uh, you know, in interviews with Oliver back here that I was able to really piece together uh, kind of that story. He had, he had had a phenomenal year in 47. I mean, if, if, if 1947, I did an estimate of what he would have made on the tour uh, that year had it and I compared it to 2019, he would have won $9.2 million if he had the same record in 2019 that he had in 1947. He won $17,000. So, <laughs> I mean, he won the Texas Open. He was, uh, he was third in the U.S. Open. He was second in the Western Open. Uh, you know, you just go down the list of these major tournaments and fly... 2019 money to them second at the canadian open uh you get you get the nine million dollars real quick yeah that's wild so john how long did you uh take to write the book uh it's interesting that you ask because i'm getting ready to do a talk on thursday and i was just looking at some of the data on it um the book took me 16 months i started um last august of uh, 2020 uh i had pretty much written most of what i wanted to write in about and completed the research and had written most of it uh by in a year um uh, probably about 11 months and uh then as you know with books then began a fairly long editing process um and uh eventually uh, published it uh beginning of I'm sure you have uh, more than a handful of people to thank for help in that editing process if you're anything like uh, if your experience was anything like mine <laughs> <laughs> I got a lot of editing stories <laughs> yeah <laughs> I got a lot of editing stories it's almost research. like that takes twice as long as the research <laughs> right no no I mean I thought it would never end but in fact uh, honestly I'm still doing it we're uh, we're gonna have with another I had a great uh, interview or discussion the other day with uh, Jay Siegel. And, uh, you know, Jay, who just has one of the great all-time amateur records, uh, as well as winning 10 times on a senior tour. And uh, we hooked up. Um, I, uh, I, I guess I don't really know Jay, but, you know, since I'm in the area, I actually have played with him once or twice over the course of his career. In fact, incredibly, my brother and I once tied he and his partner in a golf tournament, which I reminded him of, and he claimed he remembered. <laughs> I found hard to believe. But anyway, um, um, and he, uh, he actually 
said to me, um, uh, which which was you know just incredibly rewarding. He said, you know, he said I didn't I didn't want this book to ever end. Uh, you know, and that was a that was a heck of a thing I thought to say uh, that he enjoyed it that much. And uh, you know, and he went on to talk about Oliver. You know, he just said he says I you know I heard of him, but I never understood what he called his full personality. And he said, I just can't think of anything, you know, or anyone, even including all my time on the senior tour, that really compares. Wow. And, uh, you know, it was um, a nice comment. So anyway, part of, uh, <laughs> part of the change of the book that's, uh, in this latest run is going to be uh, Jay's uh, quote will also be on the cover of the book with uh, Gary Player, Tom Coyne. Yeah. Um, uh, so, um, anyway. Uh, well, he really was correct. It's a it's a terrific read. It's hard to put down. It's a um, it's a page turner, and Porky is just such an interesting uh, subject to write about. I I really did enjoy reading the book. Well, thank you very much. I said to his, his children a couple of times as I was going through this story, I kept I would send them chapters, you know, looking for the feedback. Uh, and this is funny. I don't know if any of them will ever hear this, but. You know, uh, his, his daughter Joanne and Eddie, the oldest, they're in their late 70s. I think Eddie may be 79 now. And they live in Florida. They have had basically no exposure to technology in their life. They don't email. <laughs> they don't use cell phones. <laughs> so so I, I have to call them on landlines and mail them every time. You know? so, and then take notes every time I talk to them. But... Is, and, and, and Johnny and his wife, Johnny's the youngest, he's only seven, and he lives in downstate Delaware, uh, and he's been great, but uh, uh, his wife's a little bit better because she can even get texts and things from me. <laughs> but, um, you know, I said to them several times along the way, I said, you know, your father's story is so good, my only fear is that I just won't do a good job telling it. I said, it takes my breath away, the stuff that I learn about him. And I'm just trying to figure out how can I do justice to this guy's story. It's that good. You know, the other thing I, I found interesting was uh, that Jackie Gleason was interested in playing him in a in a film version of his life. What a movie that would have been. Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? I mean, <laughs> you know, everybody, uh, I'm going to draw a blank here for a second uh why do i do this i, I should uh, always helps to have uh, google handy right but, uh, <laughs> um the scarecrow uh, oh ray bulger uh, ray bulger so like, i mean he has these relationships with all of these celebrities and uh, you know bulger was one of them of course the one of his closest friends uh uh forrest um uh, God, sure, I do it again. I can't. I can't get the name. But uh, uh, Johnny, the youngest, is named after the uh, a Broadway star, uh, uh, Forrest. Uh, whatever. Anyway, uh, he. Uh, but I think back to Ray Bolger. Now I've heard this line over the years in golf, uh, and it, but I think Oliver may have originated it. It was. It was a column, I believe, in the Los Angeles. Times, um, where they were interviewing Bulger, and he was talking about having played in a pro am 
with uh, with Oliver, and he and he said they asked him if he helped him with his game. He said, "Well, he's up to the bar afterwards." And we sat down, and I asked Oliver for some help with my game. You know how I can improve, <laughs> and he said, "Well, actually, um, I just think you're overgolfed. I think you're overgolfed. <laughs> I think what we ought to do take three months off and then quit permanently." <laughs> but the lines this guy would have, you know, that just came out of him. He was just a he was a natural comic, and you can see how you know somebody like Gleason was you know so attractive. And he he spent so much time down in down in Florida. They did have a. Uh, he was connected to the uh, to that uh, New York Giants uh, owner Stoneman, I think it is. Uh, yeah, the Mayfair. Uh, at Mayfair, and he and Jay Abair were the uh, you know were basically his winter pros. Mm-hmm. So uh, he, in fact, I'm I'm going to say at least one year the kids were telling me they went to school down there. They stayed hmm. down there for like three months, and and Claire enrolled them at school down there. So. Uh, yeah, he uh, he was connected to all these characters, and everybody you know came out of the woodwork when he was sick and when he died, and everybody had an Oliver story, and it was I, I was just I, I was just constantly uh, amazed at what I was uncovering. And he was such a natural with the galleries too. Yeah, you know it was so funny because he got lectured, I guess, by different pros. <laughs> the one story I told him there was lost and little said, you know, you just got back to concentrating and you know uh, and he did tell the press back in Wilmington that that uh, Little had uh, tried to uh, tried to get him to concentrate better and he said you know I just he said these people pay to get in and uh, you know uh, I, I, I every once in a while I run into guys I was in the army with and you know I just can't ignore them you got to talk to them you know <laughs> <laughs> so he just had that you know that crazy happy-go-lucky attitude all the time and never changed i mean it never changed no matter what befell the poor guy he <laughs> just picked himself up and kept right on going and 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 he was like the pied piper and the fans on the golf course and the people back in this community i mean he had he had an entourage all the time wherever he went everybody loved him and uh, you know just hung on every word and i, I can remember as a kid, you know, hearing all the locals talk about him all the time, and my father was full of stories about him all the time when he was young, and he was just such a fantastic all-around athlete, so they all had stories about all the things he did as a kid. And, uh, uh, you know, because he was just this, you know, he was this sort of Superman in their presence. Yeah. Uh, it must have been a wonderful thing for them to be around him. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, and he had this personality that went with it and you know so everybody loved them so um, uh, it really uh, I mean I, I can just you know I can remember because I was with them I actually played the golf exhibition with Tommy Bolt and Charlie Sippert when they came here in 83 and this is 22 years after the guy died mm-hmm. and they spent you know the afternoon telling stories they had he had his Eau Claire laughing her head off, and we all had dinner together that night, and it, the story just kept right on going. And Char- Charlie spent tour. hours driving up after a after a senior tour event to to be there, didn't he? Sifford, Sifford, and the press asked him. I said, "Like, what are you doing here?" And he had just finished second at the 
Hall of Fame Classic in uh, Pinehurst the day before. Uh, he won $15,000. I think it was his largest in his <laughs> career up to that point. He got in his car and he drove eight hours to Wilmington, Delaware. That's amazing. And the press asked him, what are you doing here? He said, I, I would go anywhere to be there for Ed Oliver. Uh, what an interesting guy. Well, John, why don't you tell us how we can order the book? Yeah, well, um, uh, right now, the best way to order the book is on the website, uh, which is olivergothbook.com. And uh, uh, we do expect to be out on Amazon next month uh, uh, and in other outlets. Uh, but uh, over the next uh, several weeks, the best way to get the book is uh, olivergothbook.com. Okay, great. Congratulations on the book. I, again, I really enjoyed it, and uh, good luck to you with it. Thank you very much. Great talking to you, Larry. Great talking to you, John. That's John Riley. The book is called How He Played the Game. It's the story of Porky Oliver, and it's a great read. Thanks again, John. Thank you very much, Larry. Talk Take to care. you soon. Every Thursday, Tour Backspin delivers to your email inbox a blast from the past with a tie to today. Each week you will receive a legit research story on a PGA Tour event from the 1960s and 70s that the current Tour event has evolved from. We play What Hole Is It for fun and prizes and a little bit of trivia just for fun. We feature a magazine ad from the 60s or 70s, give a check it out recommendation and a blind shot of something funny from the internet. It's all free. Sign up at tourbackspin.com or search for tourbackspin at substack.com. <laughs>